G'day, welcome back to the Teamcast. I'm Harry Moffat, a director at the Mission Critical Team Institute, um, responsible for operations here in Australia and New Zealand as well. The Teamcast is a show where Dr. Preston Klein, Claire Murphy, Janice Jackson, Coleman Ruiz, and myself, along with our guests, discuss all things mission critical teams. Mission Critical Teams are teams of four to 12 people who are indigenously trained and who solve rapidly emerging complex adaptive problem sets. Mission Critical Teams work in immersive environments of around 300 seconds or less where the consequence of failure is death or catastrophic loss. Regardless of whether you are on a Mission Critical Team or not, we aim to bring you the broadest range of topics and guests as possible. Thanks for joining us and I hope you enjoy the Teamcast. Today's topic is rarely talked about, or at least I'm not sure it's talked about enough. For those that know me, I'm a little obsessed with adding a fourth dimension of human performance to the biopsychosocial model that has long inspired me. That model includes the three pillars, physical, psychological, and social aspects of human performance. The fourth pillar, I would argue, is the philosophical pillar of our performance. How do we make sense of our experience and perception amongst all the different environments and surrounds that we we have to navigate? For me, this has particular resonance in the extreme environments of the mission critical teams, which have profound impacts on us long after any crisis has abated. So how do we foster wisdom and understanding to make sense of, of it all, let alone in those uh, dangerous environments that MCTs operate in? And even though everyone is uh, talking about purpose, meaning and truth and trying to pick their way through the more sophisticated understanding of existence and reality, for me, there just doesn't quite seem to be room for philosophy or morality in the model first proposed by George Engel and John Romano, the biopsychosocial model. The exploration of our moral and philosophical selves seems to have been a little lost. I'm not sure why. Um, Is it because philosophy is seen as soft or nonsense at the altar of the Church of Modern Science? But it has evidently been relegated in our universities, at least when compared historically to uh, those learning environments of the Greeks, for example, where philosophical contemplation appears to have been fostered in many learning settings of the time. And why is it important? It it, it tends to those elements of developing our character shaped by wisdom and justice and virtue in general. Interestingly, underpinned in the Greek times by a pantheon of fallible gods. Uh, And that's an interesting and important point. And it, it leads us to discussions about the demise of religion or the growth of religion or even the, the impacts of capitalism. These are big concepts and perhaps that's why we dodge them. But it seems to me our philosophical and moral literacy needs some work. But that's just the world according to me and therefore wonderfully debatable and I look forward to pursuing those debates further in, in, the, in, in the future. What is unarguable though in the modern paradigm is the inevitability that members of mission-critical teams are destined to face ethical challenges, ethical dilemmas, uh, ethical situations or challenging situations at some stage in their career. Policing, emergency services, medicine, uh, these are all fields that involve the loss of human life and calamity, either through deliberate killing or accidents. 
It is hugely complex. Immorality is not just an internal struggle uh, or question of an internal struggle in life. Um, operators on mission critical teams must also knowingly go into environments where they almost voluntarily live with the consequences of unethical behaviour of others in our communities and, and be challenged in these environments completely outside of their control. And this happens on a daily basis. Preston Klein sums this up nicely for me by saying that our worst day is there every day. And that doesn't just include physical, psychological and social challenges, but I believe also philosophical or moral challenges as well. Here in Melbourne recently, the Burke Street killings is an example of our MCTs dealing with moral injustice and, and, and running towards it. Uh, and I'm not sure we give enough time to consider that aspect. Uh, and this does raise the question for me, is our moral or philosophical literacy good enough to uphold those situations? Our understanding of our physiology, for example, is as good as it's ever been. We all understand anatomy and we understand uh, proteins and, and, and all of the, phys the biology. And we're learning more and more all the time about psychology and social connection. But what do we really understand about how we understand? I think it was Mark Twain who wrote, it's curious that physical courage should be so common in the world and yet moral courage is so rare. So yes, it is complex to say the least and begs the question why our focus on ethics training and philosophy is all but non-existent in so many areas. Even more curious to me now as a practicing psychologist is that this actually presents an opportunity to sit down and host discussions and discourse as teams in a different way, which leads the team to greater connectivity and understanding. Indeed, we hear more and more of increased volatility uncertainty, ambiguity, complexity in the human terrain that we all navigate. It might follow that ethical decision-making has a larger role than ever to play, or at least it seems to me that way. Without self-exploration, we are left to be passive agents in our own identity formation to a great extent. And this is where we will eventually return in today's Teamcast. Today's episode has been inspired largely by two events of the recent past, during our COVID-induced crisis, I've spoken with and listened to doctors and nurses speak about having to choose between who gets a ventilator and who doesn't. Does the 70-year-old woman who was given amazing service uh, to her community over five or six decades and who unquestionably has earned and deserves it, does she get it? Does the 24-year-old boy who is just starting out in life but is very unclear what, if anything, he will contribute to society? Or should the fellow nurse get it, the colleague who has contracted the virus in service to her community and will die without it? These questions of ethics and morality are not widespread discussions, I suspect. Uh, they are more ad hoc or post hoc discussions and rare at best. I think it was the US Special Forces operator Peter Dillon that said, proficiency comes from practice, yet too often the reality is that for ethical decision makers, practice starts on the battlefield. Which brings me to the second event, the recent Brereton inquiry into special operations war crimes here in Australia, which is obviously close to home for me. From my perspective, war in particular is an unethical practice that we are required to justify in its necessity. Why else would we have collateral damage estimates and lawyers making decisions about how many civilians we can kill before we cross some imaginary line of morality? This is profoundly slippery and impossible to reconcile. 
and most dangerously of all, it can harden the heart and minds of the individuals to a point that they struggle to feel the boundaries of moral good at all. Ultimately, it is the frontline operator who bears the brunt, and I'm not sure we talk enough about it in this context. That is, how do we develop an intelligible moral framework through which we can view and navigate the world around us? How do we host those philosophical discussions? Ethical failures continue to litter the history of contemporary military operations. The most recent examples are My Lai Massacre in Vietnam, Canadian Airborne Regiment in Somalia, Dutch peacekeepers in Srebrenica, US Army soldiers, contractors and CIA personnel in Iraq, US Marines in Haditha, British Royal Marines in Helmand, and yes, Australian Special Forces in Uruzgan. Regardless of allegations or truths, it highlights for me a danger posed to all operators in all mission-critical teams as we navigate the grey domain of morality and our own moral guidelines. Notwithstanding the need for proper legal processes to play out and for everyone involved to have their chance to proffer their position, the Australian situation has nonetheless been devastating to our unit and our community, past, present and future. And this is not to mention our families, fathers, mothers, partners, children. Every morning I drove through the front gate of our barracks for nearly 20 years, there was a massive rock on the left-hand side as you entered, about the size of a small car stood on its nose. And on that rock were inscribed the names of the dozens who had fallen in the unit since our inception. Most had been killed in training. So the rock, as it was known, was a daily reminder of the deadly and dangerous nature of our work. No matter the outcomes of any investigations or events such as those aforementioned, there is a lesson here for us all that the rock is here also to remind us, all mission-critical teams, that our jobs are morally and philosophically dangerous as well. Not only in the decisions that we make, but in what we witness, what we are involved in, and what we can and can't realistically achieve as humans. It might also inspire some thinking about how our identity is inextricably linked to how we perceive the world around us, our existence, our consciousness, perhaps even our phenomenology, as today's team cast guests might put it. I hope you enjoy our discussion today as much as I have putting it together. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Dean Peter Baker. He's an Associate Professor and Co-Convener along with Professor David Kilcullen of the Future Operations Research Group in the School of Humanities and Social Sciences at the University of New South Wales in Canberra, uh, which is also affiliated with the Australian Defence Force Academy. He spent some time as an assistant professor of philosophy in the Department of Leadership, Ethics and Law at the United States Naval Academy in Annapolis, Maryland in the US. And prior to that, he taught in the School of Philosophy and Ethics at the University of KwaZulu-Natal in South Africa. He has studied philosophy and political science both here and in South Africa, which is his native home, where he chaired the Ethics Society of South Africa and was a consultant to the South African military. He is now a specialist in ethics and perhaps the philosophy of armed conflict. He's also held positions at the Triangle Institute for Security Studies at Duke University, as well as the US Army War College's Strategic Studies Institute. He's also been a panelist on the International Panel on the Regulation of Autonomous Weapons. Dr. Baker believes that through training in military ethics, we can impact battlefield behavior and potentially have fewer unnecessary deaths and less moral injury, an issue I know is close to his heart. 
He also works closely with special operations forces, teaching military ethics and ethical decision-making. And in his own words, he has a big focus on spreading the word about ethics and philosophy. And this is increasingly important, give the emerging interest in moral injury, an important concept that we will come back to during our chat. Now, the topic today, moral and ethics of mission-critical teams, is not only a philosophical one, but it's also deep and broad, arguably underpinning everything we do in a physical, psychological, and social sense. From Clausewitz's fog of war or culminating victory to Kilcullen's wars we cannot win, Dr. Baker and I look past the complex adaptive nature of recent war fighting to dig a little deeper into the human factors, specifically the moral and ethical challenges. Borrowing from Dr. Baker's recent book, Morality and Ethics of War, I found a nice quote that resonated with me by the ethicist Shannon French and neuroscientist Tony Jack, who offer that, we persuade people to kill on our behalf by describing the actions of war, where possible, in terms that sound wholesome, moral, and inspiring. And where this is not possible, we use neutral, objectifying terms that cloak the emotional impact of these actions. An unfortunate consequence is that this language downplays the negative effects of war on those who kill. It is a cruel bait and switch. To help me unpack this, to dive a bit deeper into the similar challenges in all mission-critical teams, we pretty much only scratch the surface. Dr. Dean Peter Baker joins me on the team cast today. Dr. Baker, Dean. Thanks for agreeing to come on the team cast, mate. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. That's great to have you. And uh, how's things up there in the nation's capital in uh, in Canberra? Oh, the sun always shines in Canberra. It's wonderful <laughs> here in the bubble. In the bubble, of course, a political and COVID uh, bubble up there. You and I have had a little bit to do with each other over the years. I remember probably the first time we truly met was around 2013 over in Perth at SASR and um, you helped us develop a, a, an ethics training package. It wasn't the first time, clearly, that you'd done that, but it was probably the first time that Perth had ventured down that road, I think, in a more formal sense as part of our operator preparation. Do you remember that that time? I do very distinctly. Um, I, and you know, I was relatively new in the country at the time, so it was a wonderful opportunity for me to get my teeth into something really quite meaty and important. Yeah, and, I, and it's still continues on, I'm, I'm glad to say, and uh, I would like to see it expanded a bit further, but I'm sure that that will be coming with the work that you're currently doing with the ADF, the Australian Defence Force. I remember for me that time crystallised in my mind that there was a philosophical dimension to human performance, which was uh, kind of under my, my charge at the time. And that seemed to be missing from a lot of the models of, of, of human performance, of operator preparation and maintenance it sits neatly for me alongside the physical, psychological and social elements. And that's that's to kind of simplify it, but I think it makes it a little more accessible. As I mentioned in the intro, since then you've written a few books, uh, you've developed the online training and course Introduction to Military Ethics, and you continue to teach at the, uh, the operator level and inspiring people to kind of dig a little bit deeper into it. I think I, we were just chatting offline. One thing that has really resonated with me is this sense of the moral framework. I think Charles Taylor, who you quote extensively in the book, talks about this moral identity. And I'm not sure that we've reached that point. You know, we have come a little way, but I'm not sure that we sit down and actually pick apart 
that identity. And I guess my first question to you is where did your moral identity start and what journeys brought you to where you are today? If you can give us a bit of a flavour. Yeah, great question. Um, before we go there, I, I think it's always important to flag up when we're talking about Charles Taylor that we're talking about the Canadian philosopher, not the Liberian war criminal, because that's probably not where <laughs> we want to get this from. Yeah. But yeah, my, my journey is a, a strange and peculiar one, I guess. I, I was born in what is now Zimbabwe, what was Rhodesia at the time. So uh, it was the middle of a, a war of liberation. Left there at age 10 and moved to South Africa, moved around a lot. But I suppose that experience of being born into war, if you like, has made it always something I've been fascinated by. And when I finished my undergrad, I'd intended to be a lawyer, but got a bit disillusioned with that as a, as a pathway and almost on a whim ended up going and joining the British Army for, for a while. Pretty quickly realized that I'm more of a thinker than a fighter, but that was it was a good experience for me. And But it also made me think a lot. I think that was probably the first time I really thought about the philosophical, ethical aspects of war. Because as you know, in the British Army, um, the way I had to do it, because I hadn't lived in the UK, though I have a passport through um, my parents, I was uh, taken as a what's called a potential officer, which meant I would have spent two years in the ranks before going to Sandhurst. My intake was with uh, ordinary soldiers, many of whom were 16, 17 years old, really had very little sense of the world, of what was really going on around them in the world, what ethics was about. And that quite shook me to some degree. That was the first time I really uh, considered, and probably the only time I seriously considered pacifism. When I got out, I spent some time reading Bertrand Russell's work on pacifism. But thankfully, that was just a phase. I passed, passed on that from that. But I think for me, it was always this question of, you know, how do we get ordinary, everyday soldiers to understand the ethical implications of what we're asking them to do and at a strategic level, are we asking them to, to do the right kinds of things? So so that was quite formative for me. I then went back and did you have any exposure at all at that stage in those, you know, those initial dalliance in, in the military? Was there any exposure at all to ethics? Not at all. I so I, you know, I had um, some conversations with the chaplain, but those were really just instigated by me uh, there was no particular framework or anything like that so the, the, there was a I think I seem to remember a, a law briefing but the only thing I remember from that that briefing was the MP concerned telling us that he was the only person in the army who, who could shoot shoot us dead if, if necessary so um, that was that was <laughs> bloody in peace <laughs> uh, so yeah it, it was very very much absent in my training at that level so that was uh, yeah quite striking I guess so yeah, I went back and, and ended up studying philosophy some more and really focused on epistemology, which is entirely useless to real human beings. But over time, figured out that my interest in the military and my philosophical interests kind of met at uh, military ethics. And so that's where I focused. I did a bit of time with the South African military, mostly doing strategy formulation for them. So I had a side window, I suppose, into, into the military again there. But I've never really been a military person per se, but rather a, a philosopher with a, a bit more access than perhaps most. Ended up teaching at the US Naval Academy, so was a Navy civilian, but just an academic really. So, so yeah, it's been it's been an, an interesting path. Now at, at UNSW Canberra, so we're, we're the part of UNSW that's based in Canberra, and um, our, our primary 
role here is to educate future officers of the ADF, which is, again, a, a, a wonderful privilege and, and a great challenge as well. So I get to do some of the ethics part of that. Going back to one part of the question, what what is your moral framework? What what And we'll come to what that is, but what what you at a personal level? Well, that's a really good question. I suppose like most of us, my, my moral framework is a, a mishmash of things that have come to me through my, my parents, through my peers, through people I admire. And I think that's an important thing to, to keep in mind in all of this. All of us have quite different moral frameworks, I guess. We, we identify different I suppose, peaks that we we align ourselves to on the horizon, on the moral horizon, but it's going to be a bit different for everybody. And so we have to think about what does it mean for us to move from that individual level, which is absolutely inescapable for us and absolutely foundational for us, to something that is appropriate at the, the level of public servant uh, that somehow uh, meshes in with the the broader uh, context of the state and I think that's that's our great challenge you know so I, I don't suppose my my uh, moral framework is really that different to to many others but it will have its idiosyncrasies my dad's a, an interesting fellow so he has some interesting ideas I'm sure some of that is rubbed off on me um, but yeah so all a little bit different and I think that's kind of our challenge very, very complex in uh, how we make up. And what I, what I love about reading through your book, that notion that it's very useful to stop, unpack it, to articulate it, whether that's writing it down or whiteboarding it or just trying to understand what it is, uh, is very, very helpful. And like anything, a framework, whether it's shooting a gun or or understanding it, our deeper inner thoughts, I think uh, is very helpful for us. And we'll come back to that. I asked you uh, in the lead up to this team cast if um, we could just do a little bit of ethics for dummies because I uh, I know when I was first kind of diving into this, what kind of an ethics, what the hell is that? Uh, and it's it's pretty complex and very there's a lot underneath it. So I guess if we could just, if I could just ask you, you know, what is ethics? Yeah, great question. And I, I think for me, and you'll get you'll get a, a little bit of a different answer any ethicist you talk to. So keep in mind this is uh, the Dean Baker version. But for me, I think one of the key distinctions we need to make to start with is the distinction between morality and ethics. Uh, and different people divide that differently. But I, I tend to uh, follow Charles Taylor, again, the, the Canadian philosopher, not the uh, Liberian war criminal. <laughs> I, used to, I tend to follow him on this where I think of uh, morality is about what it's good to be and ethics is about what it's good to do. And those are clearly interconnected, but we can pull them apart to, to some degree. And we tend in ethics to focus on the good to do part. And in that vein, there are essentially two main strands of, of ethics that are ways that we've in our society, whether articulately or inarticulately, come to try to answer that question, what should I do? And those two broad strands are, one is we follow the rules, right? So this is what philosophers call deontological ethics. And I think we can pretty much summarize those rules. I try to summarize them in terms of respect for others. So if you think of a good example of this is the idea of rights. Well, you know, we have certain rules around the idea that people have rights. So you know, we shouldn't. We should try not to violate their freedom of, of speech and certainly their right to life and so on. But if if we could 
figure out what, what is the underpinning idea and all of that. And I think it is really essentially respect for others. And so we get these rules. Sometimes they are religious, for example. You might you know, think of the Ten Commandments as a, a good example of a list of ethical rules. And obviously there's a, a re- religious aspect to those. But if you, if you take put that aside and think about what it tells you about how you should treat other people, it's about respecting them. Another example, I, you know, again, at the... Naval Academy, we had a thing called the Honor Code, uh, and that's a bit misleading because it's not honor is a is a virtue term, which we'll come back to virtue ethics in a minute. But it, the Honor Code just said a midshipman will not lie, cheat, or steal, or tolerate anyone who does. Right? It's a set of rules, and if you think about why we have those rules, why don't you lie? Why don't you cheat? And why shouldn't you tolerate anyone who does? Well, it's really about respect for other people. So I think that's one great strand we have in thinking about the answer to what should we do. The other big strand is we look to the consequences. So we think, well, what's the right thing to do here? Well, I look at what's going to lead to the best consequences for all those that I think should be considered. And in philosophical terms, this is broadly consequentialist ethics, and most commonly we're talking about utilitarianism, which is that main theory of of ethics that takes consequences as the core. And for the utilitarians, it's very demanding. For any decision we make, we have to consider as best we can the impact on anybody affected by my decision. And at the end of the day, I have to say, does this decision lead to the, the greatest good or the greatest happiness or the greatest utility for the greatest number of people affected? And then, and only then, is it the right thing to do? So we we have two main approaches there, and actually they're in tension with one another. Because if you're looking at, if you're taking that utilitarian view, there may be times you have to actually undermine the rights of an individual. So what's good for the greatest number may actually be counter to what's somebody, some individual's right. We may have to, for example, limit somebody's freedom of speech in order to ensure the greater good for the greater number. And so we have a tension between these two things. But I think overall, it's generally a productive tension, as long as we keep them in tension. I tend to think that ethic, and this is, again, my view in particular, but I tend to think we we end up with stranger results, if you like, when we get too far down the respect for others or too far down the good for the greatest number route. I think we want to be always trying to hold those two things. And it's it's clearly, evidently, delicate. The uh, An example I used in the intro was something I came across last year working with some of the emergency medicine overseas or just listening into conversations. You know, a doctor or a nurse uh, having one ventilator left and having to make a decision. And the decision was, in this case, uh, a 70-year-old woman who had been a brilliant servant to her community and given a lot to society during her life so very highly deserved, deserved of, of, of receiving the benefit. A young early 20s man who hadn't started life and there was no guarantee of what contribution he would be. So that yeah, you know, these are deeply philosophical or ethical, you know, moral kind of discussions. And then of course, uh, or not of course, but then a nurse or a colleague who had been they'd they'd kind of been on the front line with, so to speak, uh, and trying to make the decision there of who gets. So there's that's there's no rules for that, is there? There's more of a consequentialist, or I don't know. It's 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 very difficult, and I guess it highlights the importance of these discussions 
And so, yeah, how how do we balance that? Well, what that that last um, example, so, you know, those three different people, the last example is the personal side, right? This is somebody that I know that I care about. And I think that's one of the the weaknesses of the two broad approaches we tend to focus on is that they don't take that personal aspect into consideration. Yet that is what, what often does compel us. And so I think the third part of this is really when we get from the ethical to the moral and we think about who we are as individuals, mm. how is this going to affect us? And that's the third part of the triangle. I think that's what, broadly speaking, we could think of as, as virtue ethics. Stoicism is an example for of, of virtue ethics. Aristotelian virtue ethics is a good example. But it's really about our character, who we are, how we make good decisions. It's got to come down to not just a kind of calculus. It's got to come down to our, our identity in some important ways. And I think we often don't link those three together. So I, I, I am always pushing, trying to consider problems through all three of these lenses because I think that gives us uh, focuses as I said it helps us to triangulate the problem in a better way yeah you've shared that uh, model of ethical triangulation before and I uh, I've I, I must say I've never been able to apply it or or thankfully never had to reply it under pressure or or at, at in a moment but I, it's been a very helpful tool for discussions even in a corporate setting I mean there's all kinds of tensions there, which we won't go into, but there are additional tensions. But uh, bringing it back to mission-critical teams, in terms of you know, what ethics is and moral and virtues uh, as a broader discussion, I think it would be helpful to kind of understand where where they come from, how the, how this originated. I know that there's a the contest between either God created us or we created God, and I think somewhere in there is is the origins of how we first kind of started to think about ethics and and the moral self it, can we can we do a bit of a backtrack through history of of uh ethics you know if we if we're thinking about the western tradition which most of us are because even if we are in a society that that's not the starting point. That's become a, a kind of worldview that's really become a worldview. These, these ideas of, of individual rights and so on have, have become very powerful. If we look back to where that comes from, if you go back to um, people like Augustine, obviously at that point, what this defines what the right thing to do is and what the good way to be is, well, it's defined in terms of your religion. So you've, you've got this, this religious worldview that defines you. But within that, there's this I suppose attention, this is my reading, and I try to give this story in the book, between God as an imminent source and God as a transcendent source. So God is, in some sense, objective. He's out there. He's beyond us. And the good is, therefore, objective over us. But there's another sense in which we find access to that within us. So Augustine, well, if you were a, a school pupil Back in, in the day in the UK, you would have you would have learned about Augustine. I don't think they do anymore. And you would have learned this little phrase. For him, it was about from the external, right? We turn away from the world around us. How do we how are we trying to get connected to our sense of right and wrong, the good? Well, we turn away from the world around us. So from the external, through the internal, we look within, but in, in the Augustine's worldview, as we look within, uh, God's light shines within us and, and shows us the reality that lies beyond us. So it's from the external through the internal to the eternal. So it gives us a, a kind of route to objectivity, but it goes through our subjectivity. And I think as we, as we look at the way Western identity develops, and this is very much my reading of, of Charles Taylor's work, 
we see those two, the tension between those two things start to go in different directions, that eminence and that transcendence. And as you start to pull it apart, you, you get a very objective stream of looking at ethics. It's not about me. It's not about where I stand or how I feel. It's rather, it's something that stands over me and is objective for me. And, and that really splits apart into the two strands that we, we think that I, I was mentioning earlier that that the idea rules of, and the consequences rules and the consequences right so Immanuel Kant is probably the key uh, figure if you think of the deontological the rule based approach the respect for others approach and then you've got the utilitarians Bentham and so on with that other approach but then there's also this this other strand that goes off in another direction through people like the romantic poets how do you know what's the good, it's very much internalized. It's what you feel within. It's that sense of authenticity, being true to yourself. And that's still enormously powerful on us today. So I think that those three things have ended up in a in a virtuous tension, if you like, within our society. And I think they are reflected by that kind of triangulation approach to trying to address particular problems. Yeah, and there's a, I suppose there's a, a deep religious history and uh, background in all of this a lot of people would would hark back to you know I, I, I remember reading about the Greeks having you know this kind of pantheon of fallible gods you know to, to kind of really ram home the point that uh, even gods have will make mistakes and and uh, and fail and that uh, there's always that tension between you know the arguments in up, up on the on the hill or in at Olympus over uh, and often ethical discussions uh, right through to, to monotheism or to just having a, a single God and having as you said the Ten Commandments laid down for us it's always conflicted in me a little I remember reading a study years ago actually it's probably around the time that um, we met you now about these you know the two rat pups playing together. And they play together right up to the point where they won't, just short of hurting each other kind of fatally, if you like, because they're driven to want that the, to come back and do it again. So they're kind of ingratiating play, but rough to, with a limit. So there's this, this sense that we preserve that respect for others and have inbuilt set of rules that guide our social play, uh, which probably underpins, you know, community cohesion and societal cohesion. So, you know, I've always been torn between that kind of spiritual notion that we've, you know, that there's the gods of uh, that objectified uh, morality and that we've got this internal biological drivers that don't really fit under rules, probably more under the consequentialist uh, yeah, and and it's a uh, you know it's an ongoing debate and discussion. Can we explain our senses of morality of uh, what's worthwhile and meaningful in terms that are non-spiritual? And certainly, there are plenty of attempts to do that using the idea of of genes. Right? Why do why do we cooperate? Because well, one answer is because that's going to give us greater chance of passing on our genes to others. Now there are, there are challenges on both sides, and I think from a the perspective of a, of public servants, we actually don't want to be trying to resolve those those issues. Yeah, I think that that it's important to recognise that people will be compelled in different directions because of these these different worldviews. And I think we can tell a coherent story out of both of them. So, unless it becomes destructive, I think we, we're probably happy enough. And I suppose the uh, going back to to the the account I try to give of the the emergence of the Western identity. 
we can see how those things have come out of one another. So by, by the, the historical account, the secularized account, I suppose, of morality of the good has its roots in something that is really essential in the certainly in the Reformation period, which is the affirmation of ordinary life. And, and that comes to become a thing of that has value in its own right, detached from the original theological sources, that this idea that, you know, God individually cares for you and, and, and relates to you as an individual, that becomes the idea that individuals matter. And that is such a foundational idea in our, in our worldview today, that if it's... Um, utilitarianism, yes, some individuals will get squeezed out, but what we're weighing up, up is individual utility. What that individual decides is good for them, is, is right for them, is worthwhile for them. So there's still, it's a different approach to the individuality, but it's very much that. Or this idea that uh, of authenticity, we, we're getting our sense of what's right and wrong from our internal compass, if you like, or our sense of the right and wrong that's internal to us. Well, that's very individual, but they're individual in different kinds of ways. So I think we all share this idea of the, the importance, the value of the individual. Whether we, what metaphysic, if you like, underlies that is probably something we, we don't want to fight about because we, we have enough in common that we can build a sense of what's right and wrong that we can all share in, I think. Yeah, it's a it's a big area to kind of venture out into, and it's uh, this this notion of, I suppose, citizenship and you know different ideological underpinnings of citizenship. When you were talking, then I was thinking, uh, you know, I've, I've I've read a little bit of, about and of Thomas Paine recently, and and uh, this kind of rights of man, in a way, he I suppose became a conduit of a lot of thinking around that time, and in, in terms of uh, bringing that together with war, you know, being an advocate for uh, the uh, American Revolution, but also wittingly, unwittingly, it'd be great to speak to him if if if, if you could to to see where the tension li- lied in uh, in his mind, and I really like that uh, separation almost of religion and the inner kind of you know morality. And what that means, and it kind of goes to something I want to pick up on later, which is those those rules based, that deontological ethics of you know laws of armed conflict and and rules of engagement, and we see that in in uh, hospitals, police forces, and emergency services. Well, there are rules and ways in which we act. Uh, in the fire services, for example, there's buildings that you don't go into, no matter what there is, and there's that that tension, and that kind of will lead us down a, a, a road of the moral injury discussion as well, which I'm, I'm really keen to, to, to cover. To help us kind of understand all this, you know, we've, we've touched a little on what is ethics and it's a really an evolution of how we see what's right and wrong and good and bad, etc. And also, you know, the, the kind of the trajectory along which it's it's come. What can we do? Well, Charles Taylor, the philosopher, has suggested in you and yourself in your book this sense of a moral framework or, or ex- to explore our own identity, if I've put it right. Can, can we talk about that a little and maybe that'll bring some kind of a, a scaffold to where we are at the moment? Yeah, sure. So so I think that the starting idea in all this is is to start with your experience. So you know, I'm trained as an analytic philosopher, we don't, we don't do experience very much, but the continental philosophers buy into this idea that you can't understand things without involving where you stand in all this, if you like. So, so there's, a, there's a danger of, of, and I think they're right about this, 
of seeing everything in what uh, Thomas Nagel calls the view from nowhere. It's this objective, abstract way, and we try to explain everything, but actually there's some, some part of it that cannot be explained from that perspective because we are fundamentally engaged in the world. We are part of the world. We're here. We're embodied agents. So starting with that experience and thinking about uh, the way we live, we realize that we have that it's, what's inescapable for us all is what Taylor calls strong evaluations, that at every moment we are making judgments about what is worthwhile, what is good, what is bad. When you get up in the morning and you decide, you know, I'm going to go to work rather than not go to work, whatever it is you choose, you're making some evaluation of what's better or worse, what's right or wrong. And that, if you think about it, is inescapable for you. You actually can't plan your life. You can't do anything without those evaluations. So Taylor says, if we start with that recognition, that that's inescapable for us and start to explore those strong evaluations, he argues that we, we realize that actually this is in some fundamental sense who we are, that we are our sense of what is worthwhile. So when you have a, a first conversation with somebody, the first thing you're going to say is, well, where are you from? Uh, what do you do? Do you have family? But what we're really after in those questions is trying to understand what their sense of value is, what they value, what they think is important, what they think is right and wrong, what is worthwhile. So, so in some deep sense, that's our identity. And, and Taylor talks about this as our moral frameworks, that this defines us in some inescapable kind of way. In that inescapable way, is that uh, there was a term used in the book, uh, condemned to meaning, which I think is pretty powerful notion, what you're talking about. So, so as much as we, we try to uh, detach sometimes and go, oh, this is all, you know, be ironic about it, all the things that, that we care about. In fact, we can't escape it. We can't escape the sense that this matters. Uh, it matters to us. And so that is the thing that we've got to deal with and wrestle with and account for. Yeah, I'm going to make a large assumption here. It seems to me that these types of discussion and philosophy itself has almost been forced to the margins in education settings uh, in universities. I'm, that's probably a controversial thing to say, but it seems to matter less now than it ever has, but in so many ways it's more important. Than it, and, bec- and, and just to finish on that, I, it absolutely resonates with me, this kind of being compelled to meaning. To, to we, we, It's kind of embodied in us and all. It's a, why, I, I wonder why we don't spend more time exploring it or talking. Do you have a thoughts? I, I do. Um, uh, some of it is just practical stuff like universities are money-making institutions at the end of the day, and the people tend to be drawn to the things that are going to give them jobs, and so that's where the money lies. Uh, so they, there are reasons like that that philosophy gets a bit squeezed out. But I think part of it, though, is also the the uncomfortable place that the sort of very individualized reflection holds in a uh, liberal society. So the foundational idea of a liberal society is that we will set up a society that as best as we possibly can allows individuals to decide for themselves what life they want to live, to give them as much freedom as they can, to give them freedom of thought, to decide what they think is true or not, to decide what they think is moral or ethical. And we try to build as much space for that as possible, which 
seems to me exactly right. But there's a tension between that on the one hand and, for example, at schools going, now we're going to talk about philosophy because it may be come across as prescriptive and telling you how you should think about these fundamental things that a liberal society is not supposed to tell you how you should think. So I think there's a, there's a natural tendency or tension between those explorations within our society and actually the framework that defines our society. It's a little in contest with... I guess just to use one example, you know, kind of business school mantra of critical thinking being, you know, you see that on the list of things that are going to be most valuable in the future and, you know, one of the more valuable cognitive skills, which kind of is another question, is are ethics a cognitive skill? Are they a sense? Are they, uh, are they a, a, you know, when I say sense, a, a perception, perceptive sense? But it, it does beg the question that it seems to me that the first thing we need to do is understand how we learn is how to think and we kind of can miss that. And I'm not sure that passively accepting, particularly today, all the information around us to help us to build that framework is is helpful. Another thing that kind of always sits with me or, or, or prompts thinking for me is this philosophy or ethics or any types of, you know, whether it's aesthetics or, or whatever it is, it doesn't have a scientific ends to it. It doesn't have like a quantitative outcome immediately apparent so it's it's a real pity and I hope you know I in my world in business and and other passions that I pursue I have this real sense that there is a little bit of a a revolution occurring a a quiet revolution uh, of philosophy in the background I think stoicism at the moment is quite popular and whilst it's not the only offering I think it's a nice hopefully a nice vehicle to which people can start to explore and we can start to unpack this a little more. So I just want to bring it back to the framework. So one thing I haven't got through the whole book, I'm about three quarters of the way through, but I still don't have this sense of is there a concrete type of framework or what? What? how do you propose we use or, or develop a, a framework, say in, in particularly mission critical teams context? Right. So, so I think the first part we have to recognise is that everybody has their own individual framework. What we're not trying to do is to change that framework, I think. If somebody has a a moral framework that's completely at odds with what we're trying to achieve, the hope is that we've screened them out in the first place. So so I I think, again, it's appropriate, particularly in the public service or in the military or police fire, whatever, it's, it's... it would be inappropriate for us to go, this is how you should value things. This is what you should value. Hopefully we attract people who have a broad enough overlap of a sense of what is good and right and meaningful and so on. But we need to recognize nonetheless that there are going to be differences. And so what we have to do is articulate a, a way of thinking about ethics that has sufficient traction, I suppose, within each individual's uh, individual framework that we can we can come up with a, a, a public set of language, a public set of concepts that we can all agree to employ as we think about these things. So, you know, you're going to have people in your teams who who have a religious way of thinking about things. You're going to have people in your teams who are very much not religious. So we can't choose one or other of those ways of, of approaching it. We need to have a, if you like, a professional ethic that is sufficiently broad but sufficiently specific that will enable us to to act together and act coherently. And is that does that start with this uh, sense of articulating your moral or ethical framework uh, individually? 
does that is that just a simple exercise of opening a discussion, uh, you know, facilitate a discussion, writing it down? I know we used to do. You might remember we used to do an exercise that was inspired by uh, Preston Klein. I was inspired in what do we what do you value? Write an essay on what what do you believe? What do you value? And that kind of, I suppose, is one of the first touch points the operators ever got discussing. Is it is it, is this the type of thing we should be looking at? Absolutely, because I think most people are unaware of their own ethical frameworks. I think it's so in the background to to our lives. It's so foundational. It's like thinking about the floor. You never think about the floor, but without it, you, you've got a problem, right? I spend a lot of time on it. I know that. <laughs> so we, we do need to to stop and think about it and go, actually, this is this is what drives me. This is who I am. Because we need to have the ability to make that um, deliberate attempt to connect what's uniquely individual about my framework to the professional ethic or the professional framework that we've all kind of agreed upon that will define us. Because otherwise we end up clashing with one another because we, we've assumed certain things because that's part of our flaw, but that's not part of someone else's flaw. So, so yeah, that an exercise like that where you, you sit down and you write, this is, this is who I am, this is what drives me, and have that discussion so that your team, okay, we understand each other. That's not what drives me, but I now I know why you think like this about that. But then the next step I think is really important. It's to go, okay, but what can we agree on? That shouldn't actually be a, a, a something you have to make up, right? You should, in most cases, like in the military, we have a, a, a framework of, of ethics that already exists. So it's really about how do we get from where I stand to that, to that common place. And having that discussion, I think, is is a very powerful thing. And I guess uh, tying them back to the rules, uh, whether they be in the in an OR in a medical sense, or whether they be on a battlefield in terms of laws of armed conflict, and that's where I'd like to take a little turn into a more military focus because I think we can. It's an area I'm familiar with, obviously, and you as well. Talking about these rules-based ethics, where does that come from? I can't imagine the army's always fought with uh, laws of armed conflict and rules of engagement, and also, you know, if you can cover off on on a bit of just war tradition or, or theory in that as well, maybe uh, just. You quoted Shannon French uh, a little while ago, and she's got a great book that that I recommend, and I'm going to get the title. I'm going to forget the title now, but it's it's the. That's okay. The we'll put that in, in the show notes. Uh, so. But essentially what she's done, what she did in that book, and it's, it's, she did it some time ago, but I think it's really useful. She looked at different cultures and, you know, from Vikings to Romans to samurai, right, wide range of, of cultures going back a long way and drew out the fact that actually in all of them, there is a sense of what is appropriate and what isn't appropriate. It's not the rules as we have them formally today, but actually they're recognizable ideas about particularly the use of force, but about behavior. And I think this comes back to a deep-seated desire that we have, which is appropriate, to want to dis- distinguish, uh, and here again, we're talking about war, killing that is war and killing that is murder. Nobody really wants to think of themselves as a murderer, and that's appropriate. But then we need to go, okay, well, we're doing sort of the same thing. We're, we're killing people, but sometimes we want to say it's appropriate, and in, and other times we say that's that's wrong, that's murder and, and, and the like. So how do we draw those lines? And cultures have been doing that from 
from the beginning. This is what we do. This is why we do it. This is what makes it okay. And so we, we actually need that sense of what we do is okay for that fundamental, for our, our, our basic moral health that, that's, that's essential to us. So going to the just war tradition, and I, and I do use that term tradition. I think it's a better term than calling it just war theory, which I have in the past done. So if you read something I've said, I apologise. I should have said tradition, not theory. You, you outline that in detail in the book, which is, I th- it's actually a really uh, important distinction to make, I think. Yeah, so it's 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 rather it's a negotiation. I think that's the best way to think of it. Is that through time we've had this ongoing negotiation about where the limits lie and what we can and can't do, and and how we should or should not behave. And really, it's a, it's a, a tension between two things. On the one hand, it's a recognition that war is terrible, and so. That's why we we are concerned about it. That's why we even think about having ethics, right? We don't really need ethical constraints on having wonderful, happy things. War is terrible. And so we think there should be some kinds of limitations. And if you take that fundamental idea to its extreme, you end up with pacifism, that um, war is never okay because war is terrible. We give we put all the weight on the terribleness of war, uh, and that leads us to pacifism. But the other side of it is we also think that war is necessary, and so sometimes it seems to be necessary to fight wars to stop aggression, to stop the bad guys. If if only if you want to put it colloquially, we think that that's actually necessary. That has to happen. And if you take that war as necessary to its extreme, you get a kind of unfettered realism. The idea that, well, war is war and ethics is something else. We just don't put the two together. But the just war tradition is it is the negotiation between those two fundamental insights. Yes, war is terrible, but yes, also war is necessary. And so we're always kind of pulling back and forth as to how much we'll allow, how tight should the constraints be to keep the terribleness of, of war as little as possible, but that will still allow us to do what's necessary. And that's the that's really the history of the just war tradition in my mind. It's, it's the, the ongoing debate and, and tension between those two things as we pull one way or the other, as circumstances changes, as our society's understanding changes, we see we get more more permissive or less permissive in in what we may or may not do, but it's always that trying to balance those things those two things. It seems like a bit of a dualism, and but when it seems to me that the two are inextricably inseparable, or, or they're inseparable in that you know if you go back to that notion of um, of condemned to meaning or embodied morality, whatever however you want to whatever the phrase it was that you used, it's impossible in unfettered realism on a battlefield to to ignore that. Even, even subconsciously it's impacted. And I guess that's where moral injury makes its first appearance in this discussion at least. But uh and and I want to come back to that. I don't want to kind of uh, spend that ammo or one. I want to bring back to this kind of you know this sense that war is necessary and there's rules and and laws that we now understand or currently understand, I'm sure they'll continue to, to evolve, particularly with autonomous vehicles and complicating the battlefield. And and I'm sure there's emerging things we don't even know about yet to do with cyber warfare and the other the other domains of warfare space and, and who, you know these other areas that people like Kilcullen talk about. How do we make sense of it for the operators? Because they are down on the, on the front line, of course, and none of this really makes sense because war 
is impossibly unethical anyway. It's just by virtue of its de- of the definition, really. So, you know, an example I use all the time when I talk about this, or the world according to Harry anyway, is, you know, collateral damage estimates that uh, are used by governments. I mean, that's just a recognition that we are about to be unethical and here's some, but we'll minimise harm. That means little at the coalface, or how do, or not, doesn't mean little at the coalface, but how do we unpack that? Or how do we reconcile that? So I, I think there's an element of tragedy that's inescapable in, in war, right? So the ideal would be to be able to, and I think the, the collateral damage is a good example. The ideal would be if we could fight wars and, and be absolutely sure we're only ever going to kill enemy combatants. But practically, that's impossible. So the just war tradition is a, is a pragmatic recognition of what is and is not possible. So for the for the operator on the ground, for for the targeteer, whoever it is, making these really difficult decisions, right? I'm gonna I'm gonna ca- carry out a strike. I'm I'm gonna. Uh, kill somebody who I should be killing, that's appropriate, but I recognize, I don't intend, but I recognize that I'm likely to kill some non-combatants and that's terrible. I have to have a deep sense of that the overall thing we're doing here is appropriate, that, that it's appropriate for me as a representative of my state to be in this situation uh, engaging in this activity. As tragic as it is that, that some people will be killed uh, who aren't liable to harm, I have to have the sense that but the those constraints are overridden by the circumstances. So there we use something called the doctrine of double effect, which is really, a, a, if you like, a, the, the triangulation model uh, that, that I talked about in a slightly different way. So we're always starting with the rights. We're saying, okay, I have a right to kill that person because they're a combatant. They've um, agreed to be engaged in this activity of war. They're trying to kill me. It's a, there's nothing morally problematic. I don't do them a moral harm in trying to kill them. But I don't have a right to kill that person over there because they're a non-combatant. But the only weaponry I have or the only capability I have at the moment in enable me, enabling me to do one is also going to result in the death of the other. So I've got to ask, first of all, I've got to do that rights thing. What are, what are the rights that, that apply here? But then I've got to go to the consequentialist consideration. I've got to think about the utilitarian thing. Does the good that comes from this action outweigh violating that individual's right to life? And that's got to be a lot of good. It's got to be, be real and serious and very much not just kind of pie in the sky. I've, but then I can go, okay, as tragic as it is, I need to be able to kind of weigh that up. Then I've got to go to that character piece and go, well, hold on, but how is this affecting me? Who am I becoming as a result? And it's interesting that those discussions, I've, I've witnessed those discussions firsthand at, in battle update rooms and, and whatnot at the highest headquarters, and it always, it, it, on reflection, because at the time I, I, I suppose I was engaged in what was in front of me, but I've kind of come to reflect that those discussions were deep, deliberate, meaningful. They had strong uh, ethical guidelines or as good as could be delivered for that time. Never easy and very difficult decisions made by the senior leadership. But never really anything similar or any depth of discussion or examination um, for the operators. And uh, and I guess that's that, that that's what kind of um, brings us together. But you, you captured a lot there. This yeah, we, we there's a little there's this grey area on the battlefield where we hope 
that the decisions that have been made are the correct ones. So we we kind of passively accept that and and crack on and and also make yeah you know, we kind of rely on as as military and police officers and and, and MCT operators that kind of inner consequentialist ethics that we have in, inside of us. We can make good decisions as we go inside the kind of micro decisions, but they are left largely unresolved, at, particularly in warfare. And so there's a grey area post these types of challenges, I guess. And that leads to like what, what's emerging as, as largely a new new concept. I will say new, not for you, mate, but I, I'm sure for the first time many of our listeners, this concept of of moral injury and how it's tied up as part of, you know, maybe the PTSD domain or the like. I've long suspected something like that. It wasn't until you gave it language that I think it's become concrete. Do you want to, to kind of talk us through this 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 uh, moral injury? You're right. I mean, it is in, in academic terms still a relatively new idea, and it's still very much being worked out. So I, I have my my view of what it is, but you you would probably find slightly different accounts from from different people engaged in this field. But essentially, moral injury we, we're increasingly recognizing that there is a a difference between the effect on people of of PTSD, which is uh, in many ways a a reaction to uh, to stress, it's a we can kind of quite comfortably boil that down to the impact of your environment on your brain. On I mean, it, in one sense we can do that for everything, right? but but we, we've we've got to the point where we can see this is a, it's a it's a stress reaction. So I, I had a conversation with um, a neuroscientist a couple of weeks ago who is pretty convinced that if he could put everybody under MRI scans, he could predict who would be prone to moral injury. Sorry, not moral injury, PTSD, correction. Sorry, just so I got that. So the neuroscientist was alluding to the fact that there was a predictive element of suffering PTSD. Because it's be the way our brains are set up that makes us more prone to. So size of brain parts or is it neurochemical? No, actually, that, I'll leave that for another episode because I think that's that's fascinating. I mean, this is uh, we talked earlier about asking people to think a bit more or be a bit more sophisticated in how they think about themselves navigating the world, whether it's physically through touching and, and hand-eye coordination or or feeling or emoting or 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 thinking about how we're thinking. I, I think it's a really important thing. So sorry. I, I've, no, 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 that's all right. Um, I, and, and I won't try and uh, repeat the neuroscientist stuff because I'm clueless. So there you go. We'll put it in the uh, show notes. <laughs> so let, let me talk about what I sort of... Understand. Yeah, for sure. That, that's the idea that, look, there, there's an aspect of the way things can affect us that isn't, I think, reducible to, to that. And that is where, again, coming back to this idea that we are inescapably moral beings. And that's where we've done something or seen something or uh, become even just become aware of something that has so shaken our sense of ourself, our sense of what's right and wrong, the framework that makes sense of our right, our view of good and bad and right and wrong and so on, that undermines that to the extent that we actually are no longer fully able to function in the world. To me, that that's where we're, we're at moral injury. And that that's one side of it. So, so I, I suppose think of it this way. All the time we go through life, we are we face moral affront, as I call it. We, we face situations that we think, oh, that's not okay, or that's, ooh, that's bad. But most of the time we can kind of walk it off, right? It doesn't actually injure us. It's where it gets to the point where we actually are so overwhelmed by this experience that we're no longer 
able to function as we used to. Uh, we've become, say, uh, a sense of shame has become overwhelming or even a sense of anger if it's not something that we have done but we've seen something else and we just can't cope with the reality that people have behaved in this kind of way because that just is so at odds with our sense of our underlying sense of who we should trust, what's good, what's bad, and so on. And that's where we become morally injured to the, the, the point of dysfunction. But I think there's another kind of moral injury as well that, that is overlooked. And this is, uh, again, to use the analogy, sometimes with a physical injury, it's we don't really think of it as an injury. But if you say you use a pair of scissors that rubs against your, your thumb uh, every time you use it, what will happen is you'll, you'll get a callus, you'll get a bit of thicker skin there that will protect you against that pain. And we don't think of that as an injury, but it kind of is, because what it means is we can no longer feel sensations in that place the way we were designed to. Right. And I think the analogy here is that if we uh, face enough morally confronting situations again and again and again, we build up a kind of moral scar tissue. We become callous, literally. That's the term we use. And we don't necessarily see it. We don't experience it as an injury because it's not we're not, it's not characterized by moral pain, but it's an injury in the sense that we are no longer able in those circumstances to experience the, the world morally as we should. We don't experience any kind of moral empathy for others in those situations and so on. So I think those are two different kinds of moral injury, and I think they are both just as important. But I think that what we've focused on is that first kind, that, that sense of overwhelming shame and guilt. But perhaps the more dangerous one is the other one, is the moral callousness, I suppose. I love that. I love that analogy, and I'm going to borrow that and, of course, cite it, uh, Baker 2021. I had just written down in my notes being hardened, and 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 you've captured it perfectly because I think, I guess, coming back from combat and, and from warfare, uh, coming back from, you know, uh, long, hard periods of service in the police or fire where they see the consequence of unethical behaviour by others and have to live that. And then, you know, this kind of leaves, it goes to this notion that Preston talks about residue and how we process that. And I think that's another area in uh, inside this whole ethical and moral discussion or discussion on ethics and mor morals uh, or a moral self that is needs to be unpacked and explored. You know, as a psychologist now, I really value more than anything, I think, uh, reflection and review as a cognitive skill, as a mental skill. And not only in the therapeutic settings where we end up with people who may be suffering moral injuries or psychological injuries or traumas, et cetera, uh, for the clinical psychologist, I'm not a clinical psychologist, but I'm exposed to that, obviously. But also, how do we do how do we deal with this along the way so that we don't build up the calluses? We, we in the kill in the training houses of all mission critical teams, there is this notion of building up scar tissue so that you become, you know, good at a, a skill and can um, acquit yourself. But then there's this other side to it that you've revealed, where uh, we still want people to be feeling. Uh, and maybe that is ongoing review and reflections periodically uh, across their careers d directed specifically at this. Absolutely. So, so I, you know, I, you're, you're absolutely right. You know, we, we're, we're training to people to do things that normal people would find morally very difficult to do, but we need soldiers to be able to do that. We, uh, we need police to be, in, be able to pull the trigger if necessary to protect someone else 
only when absolutely necessary, but we're training you to do something that really goes against the grain. Uh, and so how do we do that while still protecting those people? And part of it is how we conceptualize those we're engaged with. There's a, there's a real danger if we start to dehumanize the enemy or criminals in a kind of uh, animalistic way. So there's lots of, of research about how animalistic dehumanization is really problematic for us. So if you think of the Rwanda genocide, for example, where the constant refrain, how did you get people essentially to get machetes and go and hack their neighbors to death, right? Not just a few people, hundreds of thousands of people. Well, part of it was a kind of dehumanization campaign that the, the constant refrain that was that came across on the, the radio stations was these people are cockroaches, 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 cockroaches. If you can start to think of people as not fully human, you can do things to them that you wouldn't do to other human beings. So we have to be very careful about that. And the, the right answer, I think, is a kind of objectification. We treat people in the moment as targets, they're enemy targets, we engage them. But we have to be able to turn that thing on and off. Uh, just as a, as a surgeon must be able to treat, you know, the thing on the table as, as a flesh machine, but be able to turn that off when they deal with them as a patient, as a human being later on. We have to keep that balance. And that's very difficult to do. And that's got to be a preventive thing. We've got to be, have that ongoing sense of, of self-reflection to go, am I becoming too hardened to this? Some degree of hardening is necessary and inescapable. But I have to be aware and, and have a, a clear sense of when it's going too far, when it's become uh, a, a degree of, of callousness that is now putting me morally at risk. Um, and we, and that's, a, that's a challenging thing. But I think having a deliberate attempt to articulate that, to step back and go, definitely, how am I doing? Yeah. This brings me back to, I, I think it's probably the most impactful chapter I've read in a book in the last couple of few years Dean, seriously, morality and ethics at war. The book, I'm not. It's it's not out yet. It um, is. On. Is is it? Okay, you've released it. All right. You sent you the draft because I could email it. <laughs> Did you? I found a spelling mistake. No, I just No, no. Seriously, chapter one: moral frameworks and identity. So, bring just capturing what you were saying there. I couldn't help but think. I talk a lot, whether it's to businesses, sports, military, whatever, whoever we're working with at the time, about having a navigation check. No, no one really understands exactly where they are. Everybody wants to know where are we going, what's the vision, where are we off to and how we get there and how do we get everyone on the boat, the bus, the train, whatever analogy people want to use. But do they actually even know where they're starting from? And I think they have an idea, but it's like, being in the jungle and and having and reducing it down to ten, we're in this ten kilometer square. You know that's just unhelpful in New Guinea. You know you need to know kind of within ten meters. So that chapter I've got it here. It's just covered in notes. Uh, I'll go through it again. I'll go and buy the book. But uh, I think this this for me is a really critical thing that the discussion has to start. Uh, at the start, saying this is where you are, because I don't, I don't actually trust that everybody really has a has an understanding of that. And if you're going to, as you say, put people out to do these work, that we need to have that. Uh, and then when we cluster and, and swarm into teams, we may not have a group understanding of what that is, but at least we've started a, a some kind of you know, internal discussion and 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 developing a lexicon towards you know grouping as a team. And that, and that, that takes us on to another discussion. Sorry, go ahead. 
I was just going to say that that deliberate uh, reflection. But I think one of the things that's also really powerful in all this is to recognize that in our groups, we have a natural tendency to drift. So uh, I always exactly. use this an analogy of being in a submarine. You're on a submarine. Uh, you're with everybody else on the submarine. Everything in the submarine is in a fixed location to where you stand. But you don't at all have the sense of where that submarine is in the ocean and, and where, where it's going. And we are very much like that as social groups. The, the, nat- the natural tendency is for us to, to position ourselves with the group as a whole but not with what's beyond it. And so we don't necessarily see when the group drifts. So that 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 stopping to reflect is powerful. And even more important, I think, is getting trusted outsiders to come and contribute to that discussion. People who are who are not in your group at that time. So you can see where you've drifted, but in ways that you just can't see. Um, I think that's crucial. Absolutely. And challenging. So yeah, it's a really powerful point. I spoke to to kind of labor on a little longer. That's another issue that I think potentially could sit alongside this callous analogy you've used, and and it's well known the bystander effect, where we become passive in our own environments, and then we have to reconcile that when we come back. We don't participate, we don't put our hands up, we don't voice our opinions, and I think having a firmer understanding of your navigation point where you where you where you're stepping off in the first place would give you more internal voice and in, internal power. To actually maybe say, hold on. You, you mentioned the examples in the books where we've seen this too to, too many times. Again, I'm not making any assumptions here about the grey and and the the depravity of war, the grey area, and 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 war is an unethical venture in in the most part as a as a construct or as a thing. But uh, you know, the common examples are Mylay, the massacre in Vietnam, the Canadian regiment Somalia. You know, Dutch peacekeepers, US contractors, Abu Ghraib, Royal Marines in Helmand, Australian investigations that are currently underway. There's just it's such a complex area; it's it's difficult to unpack. The other thing I was I was looking there, uh, and that's just sorry that that's re- in reference to this kind of the, the the bystander and and not only deliberately bystanding, but just being a passive player agent in those in those circumstances and having to resolve that. I don't know if there's such a term, but it kind of threw up the note that the term for me, moral literacy. You know, that it's almost this internal discussion to build our moral literacy. And I'm not sure that we have a well developed. We have very good triceps, biceps, hamstrings and and quads, and um, we're getting better at mental, psychological, mental skills and training and cognitive skills training, and we're getting better all the time at treating families and social things. Uh, I'm not not convinced that we're as uh, well advanced in that kind of moral or ethical literacy as we need to be. So it kind of begs the question, mate, I, I want to blister on a concept here that you cover in the book, and that's it kind of underpins this this notion of bridging the gap or and and which leads on discussions about the guardian ethos. Do you want to kind of give us a brief overview of of how we bridge the gap and 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 what's the role of a guardian ethos in that? Yeah, so um, I, I'm going to steal your idea of moral literacy. I like that. So the gap, as I see it, is and I think I've sort of alluded to this already, is between the individual framework that the person comes in with, which is always changing a bit, and the the ethics that's appropriate to that particular profession, that particular group. There's a gap between those things by definition. So we have to think about how we bridge them. One way would be to make everybody or to try to change everybody's individual moral frameworks to 
incorporate or to, to just line up with that professional ethos. I'm uncomfortable with that because I think that that's the sort of thing that you do in totalitarian regimes. You brainwash people. I think we want to give people the right to have their own sense of the good. So then we need something that will bridge the juice, that will, will pull them together. And I think that often one approach to do that is in the military context is the idea of the warrior ethos. I think that's a bit problematic in some ways. I don't think it's always destructive, but I think it has been destructive in some cases. So maybe that's not the best bridge. The idea of a profession, I'm a, I, you know, this is my individual sense of what's good and right but i'm also this other thing i'm a i'm a professional and as a professional fill in the blank whatever it is these are the things that define my appropriate behavior i think that's powerful and maybe that's the one we want to go with my concern is i think the idea of professional is it doesn't fit everybody in the military so um you know as we think about the that the way we define a profession in the military, it's someone with expertise in, in the management of violence. Well, if you're a, a military dentist, are you a military professional in that sense? Maybe not, right? So, so I'm, my argument uh, is for something that's a little bit broader than that, and that's this, this conception of being a guardian. What, what is it that we're here for and what justifies what we do? Well, we do what we do because we, we act to guard the people of our society. And that, that is fundamentally what gives the military its right to exist. It's what gives the police its right to exist. It's that social contract between the people of that nation and those who, who bear arms in, in their service. So there is that fundamental idea that that's what we're doing. And the, the, the powerful thing about that is being a guardian is not if your if your image is I'm a warrior, that suggests the answer is always war. But being a guardian doesn't have that that assumption. It says that there are different ways I can do that. So I think it gives a kind of flexibility that that's quite powerful. But the other the other side to it is, at, at an individual level, my identity is to protect others. Sometimes I protect others by killing those who need to be killed. That that's inescapable for me. But that's the reason I do it. It's to protect others. It's for, so, so that will protect us, I think, against the idea that, well, those are their civilians or those are enemy civilians and therefore not to be, we're not responsible for them in the same kind of way. No, I think we have a, a responsibility to them as well. And so I, I just think that this idea of a guardian is just that bit broader. It's something that more people can buy into. Uh, it can encompass you, whether you're a, a chef or a, or a dentist in uniform or, or a, a soft operator on the front line. We can all agree on that and we can kind of go, okay, that's what defines what we do and why we do it. Yeah, I like it. It's certainly well, part of a big part of the motivation for, for me to join the military in the first place is that, that sense of service to others and certainly overseas you do probably more of that, and it's more meaningful. I always say that my my uh, experience in Timor was probably the most powerful for me in terms of you know satisfaction as a professional soldier, just knowing that um, being there was beneficial to to everyone. And it was there, you know, I was never shot fired in those deployments, and I, I really enjoyed those. I, I like the idea of the guardian. I think you know there's, there'll be some people saying, "Well, you know, we need people, we need war fighters," and of course we do. In the infantry and special operations, you know, dare I say it, those frontline 
will will always be fraught, and uh, we will always need people who need to be able to switch off and 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 uh, do the killing. Uh, is, that's frankly, uh, so there'll always be a place for that. But I, I like I'd like to see those mindsets almost nested underneath you know this one of guardianship i just think it's a much better place to come from and i really like that i'm only just getting into that chapter now and, and enjoying it one question on my mind and i've already kind of alluded to this and it's just uh, i'll be a bit self-serving for a moment but you've spent a lot of time talking about special operations there's a there's a, a nuance to there is is it any different or or is it the same are we doing the same thing is it, or is it ubiquitous across all mission critical teams? You know, I don't want to try to speak across all, all mission critical teams because the military is my area, but I think there are differences, but strong similarities or, or so, some things are the same. And, but I think context changes. So really for, you know, one of the, one of the questions that came into, came to me when I first started looking at special operations was, is there a different set of ethics that apply here? Uh, and I think the answer is no. I think that it's the same rules and constraints of the just war tradition. It's, you know, discrimination or distinction, proportionality, necessity, all of those things still apply. What's different is the contexts in which they apply. And the, these concepts have always been pretty flexible. And I think that that's the power of them in many ways. But we, we have to think about, you know, what are the particular challenges that special operations forces face, ethically speaking? And what does that mean for the application of those principles? And I think we haven't really done enough of that work yet. I'm slowly writing a book with David Wetham at King's College London and uh, Roger Herbert, who's uh, at the US Naval Academy. He's a, a former SEAL, SEAL Team 6 guy. And we're, we're slowly working through these questions. Like what are the what are the mission sets that are so that are distinctive of special operations forces and what are the particular ethical challenges that they face so that we can start to show how these broad concepts apply in those contexts and that i think there's an element or i hope you would agree that the asymmetry brings different challenges Definitely. ethically morally I, I i kind of tend to think that there's a there is an overarching yeah one one example i can think of is if you go into a third country or into a, a, another country and through key leader engagement and and engaging the local populace uh, you can unwittingly or finance or resource uh, one group and think you're doing the right thing only for them to turn around and use those resources to go and kill another group who have been feuding for for centuries you know or, or however long and in your planning and strategic kind of appreciations that becomes a factor and it's a bit of a challenge because you then leveraging known feuds and known rivalries to gain favour or intelligence. So I think at that edge of special operations, I don't know whether you'd call it the edge of ethics or or moral, uh, but it, it does present some unique challenges. And I think as the world continues to evolve, we'll, we see more asymmetry in other fields in mission critical teams, such as policing. And, and we see, you know, in, in, in task force, Emergency service response. Now we don't just see a fire truck rolling up. We also see paramedicine, police. You know, there's threats at the end of there, beyond just the, the the crisis that they need to manage. So, it's it's something to to think about. To go back to an earlier comment you said, I, I don't think that war is essentially unethical. I think it's 
undesirable in many ways, but sometimes it's the right thing to do. Sometimes it needs to happen. But but we're always about identifying the space where we feel that what is being done is justified. And I think that's that's the way, you know, in that example you gave, you're working with some kind of non-state group or whatever the group is. So you're weighing up what you think might happen. And sometimes even if you think, well, they, they may well go and do bad things, that may still be the right thing to do given the importance of the task you're trying to achieve. But then you may go, but my ethical duty is to ensure that we limit them as much as we can or or have as many controls in place as as we can. So we ensure that we Mm. keep good records of of what we've trained them to do and what we've given them to to do it with. Because then if they do something down the line that they shouldn't, they're more likely to be held accountable. So it's it's this ongoing negotiation. It's messy. Absolutely, it's messy. That's right, yeah. But we're after the most justified choices we can in very messy and difficult situations definitely which kind of leads us into maybe not the last thing but one of the last things i wanted to touch with you is just you're doing training with various militaries and and providing online and face-to-face training uh, around canberra there at the Australian Defence Force Academy, amongst other places and with special operations. What are some of the things that you're finding resonate or some of the things that are, that are getting through uh, or getting cut through and having an impact, Dean? What are some of the training methodologies or, or, or So, So I, I'm, I'm very encouraged, I, I have to say, um, about the openness that I'm finding, um, at, uh, certainly in the Australian context, but I'm hearing positive things elsewhere as well to thinking more about ethics. But I think we've got we've still got a long way to go. And, and part of the, the challenges for us, those of us who work as ethicists, is there are gaps in our understanding that that need to be be filled. So one of the things we're we're thinking about is what does it take for someone to make a sound ethical decision or or to act ethically in, in any particular situation. We've kind of divided it up and said, well, first thing they need knowledge. They need a general knowledge of what the what the rules are for this particular kind of thing that we're doing. So, you know, in, in the military, it's the they need to understand the basics of the just war tradition that, and the, the rules that apply there. And I think that the problem is we tend to stop there. We tend to go, okay, we've given them the briefing, we've yeah. given them a lecture, good to go. But of course, that's only part of it. You need that, that's important, but they need all these other things as well. They need to have ethical sensitivity. They have to actually be able to recognize that this is a situation that I need to be thinking about ethically. But sometimes we, we swan our way through and just don't even see it, right? So we need to find ways to develop that ethical sensitivity. And what I'm, I'm seeing is, is a growing recognition that one way to do that is to keep building in ethical challenges to as much of your training as you can, so that it becomes normal for you to look for these things, to see Oh, I'm going to have to make an ethical decision. So that ethical sensitivity. But also you need to have decision-making skills. It's not just knowing what the rules are. You've got to figure out how to apply them in this situation. Uh, and that takes practice. So practice, practice, I think is, is exactly right. The Stoics were right. Uh, Aristotle was right. It's about what you do again and again. That's what defines you. Then you need, uh, what have I got? I've got knowledge. I've got sensitivity. I've got decision-making uh, I'm going to miss one. That would be bad. Anyway, you you've got to you've got to keep doing it. So you've got to have grit. So and that's particularly I think relevant here in these kinds of environments where you're dealing with teams who are at the forefront, at the the toughest 
side of things again and again and again, what does it take to help those people to keep on making those hard decisions, to do it when they're tired, when they're hungry, when they've had a bad day in general, when they're under enormous pressure to do something else? What is it that enables people to just keep going and keep doing the right thing? And I think that's the, the richest area that we've haven't really looked at properly yet. We can draw on research that's happening in, in, some, in psychology, uh, in neuroscience, but we've just not really done that, that work in the military context yet. And I think that's a, that's a hugely important area of research. So you're talking about moral decision-making under stress and fatigue. Yeah, okay, that's interesting. I know um, one of the recent team casts uh, spoke to Danny Cooper, uh, not in any great depth, but we touched on... Um, you know, human performance in fatigue and stress. And it's, it's of high relevance and high interest everywhere, um, of course. It's all sorts of environmental things that affect mm. us. So, you know, fascinating studies they've done. For example, one study, there are three groups of people, gave them these various exercises to do. It, one group was not wearing any sunglasses. Another group was wearing sunglasses that they believed to be fake knockoffs. And the other group was wearing the same sunglasses, but they believed them to be the real deal. They were the real deal, but it didn't really matter. And what they found was the group that believed that they were wearing fake sunglasses cheated 200% more than the other two groups. Right? There you go. So it's we're, we're really weird creatures. The yeah. things that influence us that are subconscious, that we don't recognize, are hugely powerful. So we have to do the work to, to try to identify what those factors are for us in our environments. Yeah, I mean, advertising companies and many businesses, many social media companies make an art form out of deceiving our quite easily deceivable human foibles or, or uh, biases that we, we've got. So uh, it makes perfect sense to me. And I agree with you. I think it's actually at the where these potential ethical problems will exist will be in those margins where people are less aware, more fatigued, uh, more stressed, less conscious of their environment and the influences and impacts it have. So that, that makes it very, very important. And I really love your your thoughts about scenario-based. It's something that has been tried to be rolled out before I've seen in my over my career, but it just never seems to to get the buy-in. You know, it always seems like oh, it's the, that's soft soldiering. You know, we want to we're, we're war fighters, and 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 of course we are. But I think there's so much more. You talk towards the end of the book about the fourth block. I hope I'm getting this right. I've only scanned forward, but. And that being, is is that the, what concept is that? So there's a three-block war from, is it Clausewitz? Krulak, that's the one. Yeah, got not me Koswitzes and Krulaks all mixed up. But uh, he talks about the three-block war, you know, the need to be a warfighter, humanitarian and, and diplomat at different stages of a day's fighting. But was it the four-block, fourth block you were alluding to? Is this, is this kind of in that ballpark I, I, I'm just suggesting that that it's become even more complicated than that. That's all I'm really trying to suggest with that. That you know, the, the, we're talking about there's this psychological or f almost exactly. philosophical element that we need to kind of tra you know, navigate around. Negotiate, and we have to we have to train for it. We have to build for it, uh, just as much as we do for the others. Yeah, I, I love that. And as you know, one of the things I'm passionate about, and I've almost 
tried to building a business around it almost is that this extra dimension to human performance. We, we very well established Engel's biopsychosocial model of you know physical health and psychological health and social health. And I think that there really is a, a part for the philosophical or moral or ethical part. And in fact, I think it's the foundation of all three of those old threes. It, it goes to consciousness and our perception and experience in, in the world. Mate, um, the last thing I want to cover is just where are we at with uh, moral injury? Where, where you work with Doctor, as you professor now, Tom Frame, there in Canberra. I, I must say I haven't explored it much further than both of you. Is it is it an emerging area of research and and science? You uh, you've you've talked internationally about it. Just give us an update on where where your investigations are there. So it is happening in various um, places around the world. Tom Frame, as you said, was doing some work on that. He ran into some challenges. The, the great difficulty, of course, is when you're talking about moral injury, you're, you're dealing with the things, the events that have potentially caused that moral injury, which can potentially have legal implications. So it can be quite difficult to do research into this area, but it is definitely happening in, in different places. Uh, another example is um, a friend of mine, Peter Lee, who's at Portsmouth University in the UK, who he, he started off, he was originally uh, an RAF chaplain and then became a, a professor really focused on, on this issue of moral injury uh, and did an embed with the UK Reaper Force uh, and wrote a book on them and, and how the, the impacts on, on them and their family. But he's doing some fascinating work at the moment looking at moral injury for UK police whose role is to deal with child pornography. So these are people who spend their days looking over and over and over at appalling images. Wow. Uh, and he is looking into you know how, how can they be helped? What can we do to mitigate the risk or the... Huge risk in their case of of moral injury for them. So it's happening. Uh, we're still at the point where there's debates over the terminology. I had a, a, a discussion with an army army colonel just the other day who doesn't like the idea of moral injury. Thinks it has has um, uh, religious overtones that we don't need. So we've got a long way to go, but there is work happening and, and important work as well. Yeah, great. I, I and long may it, mate. I think it's uh, it's an interesting, not only an interesting area, but I think it's real it's manifest and and we, we we i've certainly experienced it and and seen it firsthand and i think whether it ends up being called moral injury or needs to be separated from religion i don't know but i think the concepts sound and and uh in my mind concrete to that end mate what what's i'm an operator young operator just listening in on the team cast from wherever in the world and i'm just starting out on my journey through emergency medicine, fire, police, military. Is there anything I can do starting tomorrow? Uh, you know, for example, is there reading? Is there any recommended reading you could you could give me? So it's going to depend a little bit on on what your your professional aspect is, but I, I strongly encourage you to find those foundational ideas, whether in the military it's you know it's the just war tradition, but uh, in medicine there are clear and very well-developed ethical frameworks. Knowing what they are is that first step, right? You've got to have that. You're, you're never going to make good ethical decisions if you don't have that knowledge. But then it's about going, how do I get there? How do I develop myself to the point where I'm comfortable that I'm going to make the right, the good decision at that time? And don't wait till you get there. 
So the old saying is, you know, you, you can't wait for the combat fairy to come and bonk you on the head when the fighting starts. Uh, you're just going to sink to your level of training. And that's personal as well. As, as individuals, we have to be consciously aware in advance of ourselves as moral beings and develop ourselves as moral beings. So um, I had a colleague at the, the Naval Academy, and this is where really the that virtue ethics, uh, whether it's Stoicism or Aristotelian virtues, is so powerful. It says, you are what you do repeatedly. So the more we do these things, the more we form our character to be such that when the moment comes, we're going to do that hard thing. And I had a colleague, as I mentioned, who was a retired Navy captain, and he did this great little exercise, which I recommend. What he did was he, he got a sheet of paper and listed out what he thought were the, the important virtues, the things that he thought were he should be, whether it was compassionate, courageous, whatever you want to put on your list. And then he rated himself against those. Am I, am I patient? Well, on a scale of one to ten and did a self-assessment. But then he gave that, he printed the same bit of paper out and gave it to five people who knew him really well and said, won't you rate me against these? And as he tells the story, he was quite surprised by what came back, right? It opened his eyes to aspects of his character uh, uncomfortably, but aspects of his character that he wasn't aware of, shortcomings. And what he did as a consequence was he summarized down the key virtues that he felt he needed to work on the most. And he had a little list, put it in his wallet, and every morning he would look at his wallet and go, I need to try to be more that. And that was a deliberate attempt to train himself day in and day out to become that better person, to become that person who's better able to not snap at your colleague when, you know, the, the day is is late and you're tired, or whatever it is. It's that practice. And I think that's a that's an enormously powerful thing we can do. Absolutely. We perfect what we practice. I thought you were going to quote there for a moment, Peter Dillon. It was a quote you gave me many years ago that I've included, which is proficiency comes from practice, yet too often the reality is that for ethical decision-making, practice starts on the battlefield in that in that context you were explaining. I probably would have quoted him if I'd remembered the quote. Yeah, I, I had to read it, mate. So I just had to scramble to find it on the computer. Hey, I hope there's a handful of people listening to this that are that are asking what book on philosophy can I grasp and get an overview that's going to be about ethics, philosophy, or, or you know, moral philosophy. What is there anything you could recommend, even if it's just for me, mate? Yeah, well, I, I mean, um, there are so many. So let me let me just t tell you what I'm reading at the moment, which I think is is well worth reading. It's a book by Dan Ariely, who's a professor at Duke University, um, and I'm rereading it. It's called The Honest Truth About Dishonesty, uh, and it's very uncomfortable reading. Uh, that that um, study I mentioned earlier about the sunglasses was a project that Dan Ariely did we're not nearly as rational as we think we are. We're so influenced by our environment and factors around us. But I think recognizing that is hugely important. And if we can start to try to extrapolate from the sorts of things he is uh, identifying, we can start to identify things that are potentially factors for us in our environments and start to think about how do we personally mitigate those. So that that's, I think, one definitely one worth reading. I think the other one worth reading and uh, not to flog your book too much, but I'm sure it's available in all fine bookstores, mate. But it's um, an academic book. I don't know if anyone will ever read it. Yeah, look, I think why well, I think we should be. There's a lot of um a lot of self-help out there that's built on good academics. So why not go to the source, I guess. But moralities and ethics uh, at war, whilst there's a unapologetic 
military flavour to it. I think it has so much more. And, I, and as I said, that first, especially the first half of the book really captures some of the philosoph- uh, philosophical underpinnings and history that I think is really important. I, as a again uh, through psychology, the start point is always the history of psychology. No, whatever, no matter what domain that you're studying, and I think the same can be said in uh, in this discussion as well. So, I will uh, mention another book. It does have my name on the cover, but I'm only the editor. I didn't write all the all the bits. And it's uh, with military people in mind. It's a book called Key Concepts in Military Ethics, and it's it's designed deliberately to be very short introductions to the main ideas. Because I I found the reason I put it together was, you know, there are a lot of good books on military ethics, but they tend to be quite dense or aimed at university courses. But this was aimed at I can just drop in and read a thousand words on whatever the particular issue is and I get a kind of get a sense of it. So it's not perfect, but I think it's that's a it's a useful book as well. And I would encourage everyone listening, no matter what domain, what mission critical team that you're in, that you should start discussions. Uh, they're not soft discussions and they're certainly not nebulous or, or, or they're, they're certainly worth, worth the while and time and very interesting once you relax into them and, and also explore like books in, in the different domains of mission-critical teams. Uh, I th- Personally, and Dean, I suspect you feel the same, that uh, this development of our moral and ethical selves, if I can clumsily use that term, is just as important in, in my mind. At this end of my life, after a long career and and um, a busted body, mind and soul and, and family, it's something I, w- I would tell my younger self, my 21-year-old self, to grasp and get a good, particularly, and we haven't even touched on leadership and how to lead the Guardian ethos and how we manage this space as leaders, but I hope that people can infer that from our discussions. I wish I really wish I had have had a, a greater grasp on this as I went into senior leadership roles. I would have been better at my job. Mate, it's been awesome. So thank you so much. Great to reconnect. I can't let you go without asking your uh, what are you listening to at the moment? Have you got any? Um, you know, what are you what are you you're listening to? Any music? I, I confess that I mostly listen to uh, not very high quality novels when I'm driving around. So I don't even know what it is at the moment. Um, but I find that it's a it's a good way to take my mind off the, off the everyday. So that's what I tend to listen to. We're both um, of the similar age. We're probably both stuck on talkback radio or something like that. Is that? <laughs> oh, no, I try no. not to listen to the news as much as I can. Yeah. Get, yeah reality, get reality out sometimes, I think. All right. <laughs> well, don't forget, I think music's a really important part of uh, of, of uh getting around and navigating the world too. So, look, thanks very much, mate. I really appreciate your time. And uh, on behalf of the Mission Critical teams in the military here in Australia in particular, you know, thanks for the work you've done and are doing and, um, you know, keep forging ahead, mate. I think it's um, it's brilliant. So thank you very much. Thank you, Harry. It's a, and I really uh, think you're, you've, you're doing a wonderful thing here. So thanks for letting me be part of it. I appreciate it. Good on you. Thanks very much, Dr. Dean Peter Baker. Thank you. Well, that was pretty heavy stuff, eh? This is legitimately one of those topics and one of those times I can hand on heart say we could do 10 shows on this stuff. It's uh, it's big. But I hope it gets everybody thinking and inspires some discussion. I think it's really helpful and beneficial. What is beneficial is it's always good to get another team cast out from down under. And uh, I'll be back in a couple of months. I'll give you a break from the uh, the Aussie drawl for a while. Uh, and we'll have some, some more guests, including uh, an expert in the neurology of creativity. 
something close to my heart. And we want to learn how and why we see so many creatives in mission critical teams and how beneficial creativity is to our performance, our life satisfaction, amongst many other things. And I might even introduce you to the externals for the first time. As usual, you can find out more about the MCTI at missioncti.com. On the website, you can sign up for our newsletters and join our distribution list. And you can share the Teamcast all over your favourite social media and podcast channels. Until next time, thanks for tuning in and look after each other.